science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. My name is Javor, and this time I'm joined by Marcella, who is sadly sick right now and cannot record this intro with me. Um, I would like to welcome her, as she is one of the newest members of MindWise, and also extend this uh, welcoming to the other new members. We met in this episode with Sebastian Mathot. I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing his second name. I'm really sorry but I don't know how to pronounce it. Since he is a new face at the experimental department, we decided to go and have a chat with him and get to know him. We talk a little bit about his uh, past and what he studied before and what he works right now, which is pretty interesting stuff. He is currently exploring how pupil size interacts with cognition. So if you want to hear more about that, Please uh, stick through the episode. He's also the creator of Open Sesame, which is a absolutely free to download. You can go right now and download it. Software for developing psychology experiments. Without further ado, let's get to the conversation. We're very pleased to meet you, Sebastian. Oh, is this how here. you pronounce the name, Sebastian? Sebastian, well, yeah, so it's a Dutch name, so you'd say Sebastian, but uh, Sebastian uh, is uh, just fine, or whatever kind of pronunciation you want to use. You come from the Netherlands? I do, yeah. yeah um, so I, where from? Uh, from Amsterdam. So I spent, uh, I studied in Amsterdam, I did my PhD in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and then afterwards I moved to, uh, to France, to Marseille, for okay. uh, quite a long time. And now I'm here, back in, uh, back in the Netherlands. And how did you... Uh choose to become a cognitive researcher or psychologist? How do you like to call yourself? Well, I, I tend to call myself cognitive scientist, but that's mostly because my website is called cocsci.nl, mm-hmm. so that, that, and uh, other websites like cocsci with a P and were already taken, so. No, I think experimental <laughs> psychologist, cognitive science, so kind of boils to the same thing, right? And yeah, how I, how I came to do what I do, I, I started doing bachelor's in uh, computer science. So when I uh, when I started studying, I did computer science. I thought it was slightly boring, and very business focused. Also at the VU University in Amsterdam, mm. and then I decided to do kind of do psychology on the side, not necessarily because I even knew what cognitive psychology was, but just I guess it seemed interesting. And. Uh, well, my focus gradually shifted uh, more towards psychology. I never even finished computer science, actually. And uh, I met uh, some people from the cognitive psychology department there at the VU University. And uh, I got the opportunity to do a PhD with Jan Theo, who is my, uh, my former PhD supervisor now. So it kind of it kind of grew. I just, I, uh, you know, one thing led to another, but I, uh, I enjoyed it. It kind of fits, fits me and my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, 
Have you always been interested in computer science also when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I uh, already when I was very young, I like to, uh, to I, I don't know how young, maybe maybe 10 or something. Like, I, I already enjoyed uh, programming, mm-hmm. like, uh, make, make little little computer games on my computer. And uh, I think I, we programmed in Turbo Pascal initially, later in uh, Delphi. And... Uh, so that and you know I enjoyed that a lot and that's why also why I uh, got to do uh, computer science later on. Mm-hmm. But you know just programming by itself is not enough I think and that's kind of why I, I still program a lot obviously right. Com- do, being a psychologist involves a lot of programming, a lot of uh, data analysis, a lot of. Uh, but there's some you know it's it's just part of the job and I think that that's nice. Mm-hmm. Mm, maybe we can get to the parallels between psychologists and. and programmers a bit later sure but um, first how about uh, talking about how you found your area of research uh, maybe we can first say what is your area of research and perhaps yeah how, how did you fit into that yeah I so I, th- I guess broadly speaking my area of research is vision science right so I guess my 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 main conference would be the, the conference of the vision sciences uh, society and then within vision science, so vision science is basically studying everything that has to do with uh, with visual perception, right, From uh, in whatever kind of way. And my focus within vision science is mostly eye movements and lately also pupillometry. And pupillometry is just the study of pupil size changes. Mm-hmm. And I guess, again, I it's a combination of just basically rolling into that field because my uh, my PhD supervisor, Jan Theowis, is a, is a visual attention vision science researcher, so... When I when I met him, it, you know, obviously I, I uh, kind of got into that field as well, mm. and then within that field, I tried to create sort of my own niche and find my own my own specialization, and uh, uh, which which now is mostly pupilometry, mostly studying uh, pupil size. Mm-hmm. Um, what answers about cognition can pupilometry answer? What what it can answer? Well, uh, it can answer loads. Of stuff, it's a pretty simple measure, right? I mean, the pupil is either big or it's small, and it's basically all uh, all all that you can measure. So it's uh, uh, and essentially, a large pupil means, on the one hand, that you can, uh, you know, that people are engaged, that somehow engaged, that they invest a lot of mental effort into what they're doing, or they're aroused, or they're, you know, with, uh, either physically or me- or uh, or mentally aroused. So it kind of gives you a a measure of how engaged someone is mm-hmm. but in a very very one-dimensional way because you cannot really tell why that per- person is engaged you know but just that in general someone is engaged right mm-hmm. so if you give someone a working memory task and you have that person remember a few uh, a few digits it will make the pupil dilate if you show like sexually explicit images to someone it will also make the pupil dilate and you will not be able to tell based on the size of the pupil which of the two are happening right so it's in that sense very uh, one-dimensional but still useful and that, so that is, I think, the measure that psychologists have look, looked at most, sort of arousal and mental effort mm-hmm. and, and uh, the effect on pupil size. But what I also try to do is look, for example, at the, the light response, because I, I guess you, you know that the pupil also constricts when you, uh, when you look at something that is bright, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, much of my research uh, that I've been doing over the past few years has been on this pupillary light response and how that is affected by all kinds of cognitive uh, things. For example, uh, uh, 
study should, well, I guess it, one, the main finding is that if you covertly attend, so without even looking at something, covertly attend to something that is bright, your pupil will, uh, will constrict just as if you're actually looking at it, right? So mm-hmm. right now I'm looking at you, but I could covertly attend to this lamp that's here on my left side. And that would cause my, if I do that, that would cause my pupil to constrict a little bit. Uh, and that was, so that's a, you know, that's a cognitive effect on the pupillary light response, right? Because the visual input is the same. Mm-hmm. And that at the time was quite, uh, quite surprising because everyone always assumed that the light response is just kind of like a knee-jerk reflex, right? I mean, you just, light falls on your retina and the pupil responds by constricting. And that, it, that, that in itself doesn't really have anything to do with, uh, with, with cognition or psychology. So I, but it does, we now know that it does. There are, are all kinds of uh, cognitive effects on the light response. So that's another way that you can use pupillometry in, uh, in psychology, right? Kind of separate from just the effect of dilation because of mental effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, kind of two different classes of pupillary responses in a way. And how hard it is to dissociate the dilation uh, from arousal, from the dilation that happens by looking at a dark stimulus compared to a bright one. Well, you in principle you can't because a dilation is a dilation, but you can you can design your experiment mm-hmm. such that that the only thing that you manipulate is brightness, right? Mm-hmm. So that so for for example, um, let's say that you do an experiment. I'll just try to you're in a podcast. I cannot really visualize it, but I'll try to explain it. Say that you, give an, you have an experiment in which participants look at the center, center of a screen and the left side of the screen is bright and the dark side of the screen is, uh, uh, the right side of the screen is dark. And then you ask them to covertly, so without making their eye movement, making any eye movement, to shift their attention to the left or the right side. Right? So they keep their eyes in the center, but they're attending to the left or the right side. And then what you find is essentially, if you, if you give participants a task like that, their pupil will dilate because it's kind of takes a little bit of mental effort, right? So mm-hmm. the pupil will get bigger. Um, but what you find on top of that is that if participants covertly attend to the bright side of the display, their pupil is still smaller than when they attend to the dark side of the display, right? So you, so you can, because you've designed your experiment in such a way that the only thing that you manipulate is the brightness, attending to brightness or attending to darkness, you know that, you're, you know that any effect that you find is because of that, because of that manipulation. Mm-hmm. So and that that that's why you you know that's how you can contribute things to 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 paying attention to darkness rather than mental effort right because you keep the mental effort more or less the same independent of the conditions. You on your website uh, cogside.nl mm-hmm. right? You show a interesting video of uh, one way to apply this uh, method to choosing uh, letters to write. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's an uh, interesting application and w- it would be interesting to know what other applications can you see in technology with the type of research that you're doing, uh, measuring people's. Do you see it going into technology in the future more and more? I think so, <clears throat> especially because pupil, measuring pupil size is really easy. Mm-hmm. Right? Me- measuring eye movements in general is kind of hard because you need to calibrate. Right? So say if you have a camera... Uh, it record it, to to know where someone is looking. You need to do a pretty good calibration that measures sort of well. I don't want to go into the technical details, but it's not easy. If you just want to measure the size of the pupil, it's really simple because you just count the number of basically dark pixels in the image, right? So it's it's a super easy thing to do. 
And that's, I think, that's probably why it can be used in applications quite easily. And also why, for example, in that human-computer interface that you're talking about, is quite feasible because it, you can just, you know, it's quite easy to, the technology is quite easy. Mm-hmm. So, and the kinds of applications, well, for example, people have been doing work on trying to uh, sort of uh, keep track of how, how, how much people are still paying attention if they're doing like a task for a very long time. So imagine that your your security, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, you're checking the, the the luggage of people at the airport. Uh, it's super boring, obviously, right? I mean, yeah, you see loads of these, and there's nothing nothing ever in it. And if there's actually something in it, it's always planted, right? Because they mm-hmm. plant some some weapons in it to to make sure that they're paying attention every now and again. Mm-hmm. And then one way that you could use pupillometry is basically make use of the fact that if people almost fall asleep or they get very tired, their pupil becomes very small. And you could, for example, give them a warning if their pupil becomes very small. Like, okay, it's time to take a break or get a co- co- cup of coffee or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the same, for example, for doctors who do, who see, who radiologists who look at uh, images. Uh, that, you know, things where it's important that they, keep, that they pay attention and don't just let their eyes glaze over, uh, mm-hmm. <coughs> over the image. And from your website, we also see that you're a proponent of uh, open science. Is that correct to assume? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And you're also the developer of uh, Open Sesame. Yeah. Which is open source software for making uh, graphical experiments in uh, psychology. Yeah. Can you tell us more about how did you end up developing this program? What uh, triggered you to uh, find the need to do that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of my computer science background, right? So, uh, yeah, I, uh, why I started developing, I, I guess I just, you know, I, I just thought it was fun to begin with, to, to develop something like that. I, I felt that it would be, would, would be, should be feasible to, to develop something that is just as good as the, the pretty expensive programs that people were using uh, at the time, less so actually now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I went to work and I, I, made, I made a version of Open Sesame that was actually very, not very good, right? I mean, in the beginning, in 2010, something was uh, crashed all the time, all the time and couldn't do, couldn't do very much. Mm-hmm. But it was still, uh, still people actually used it a little bit. And then that gave me extra motivation to, to keep working on it, right? And it kind of picked up momentum over time. And now, uh, now it's six years later, a lot of people are using it. Uh, there's a bit of budget to, to, uh, to keep the project going. So it has kind of took, a life on, uh, took on a life of its own. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, it takes, takes up a lot of time. Uh, but because uh, you're also doing technical supports of it, or uh... Uh, yes, absolutely. That I think that's that would be about eighty percent of the time that goes into Open Sesame is actually interacting with uh, with the users and not so much uh, working on the program itself. So, uh, but that's actually one of the one of the things that I use. The, the, there's sponsorships from uh, from SO Research and ESCOP, the European Society for Cognitive Psychology. And basically, I use that sponsorship to uh, pay two guys to to handle much of that uh, that that support because mm-hmm. that saves me a lot of a uh, lot of time, and uh, they do that very well. So Joshua and, uh, and Edward, two guys uh, from Shout the out. VU University, yeah, <laughs> the VU University. Yeah. 
Um, on the blog, we've also noticed that you made a parallel between researchers and software developers when it comes to their opinions about their work. Mm. Considering you're both a researcher and a software developer, um, how do you think opinions uh, and attitudes influence the way people do uh, research? Yeah, yeah, I think I know the, the blog that you're referring to. Um, so I, I guess basically in that in that the point of that blog was that um, software developers are a bit more constructive generally in their attitude because they they're not so morally attached. Like it's, if they have a piece of software, there's going to be bugs in it, mm-hmm. and there's not really any moral judgment or anything involved, right? You see, you have a bug, you 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 trace it down, you fix it, you b- bring out a new release. It's a very constructive way of, uh, of of working on software. And scientists tend to, but it's getting better, I have to say, actually, tend to be very defensive, right? So if their 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 theory doesn't work, it's kind of like there's a bug in their theory in a way, but they will be very hesitant to uh, to 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 admit that and to kind of come back and revise their opinion because they've you know it will be perceived as failure, right? So you were wrong or something. Obviously, you that that's true. Then you were wrong, but mm-hmm. the kind of the point the point of science is that you're always wrong. And it's just you're gradually trying to become a little bit less wrong over time. Yeah, progress is made by uh, proving things that are wrong. Yeah, mostly. Absolutely. Yeah. So and then hopefully you then hope that you kind of approximate the truth a little bit better as you as you go along. So uh, and I and I think that's a, that. Yeah, that's a that's a bad tendency that researchers have, and I think uh, the whole open science movement has changed that a little bit. It has made it easier for scientists to admit that they were wrong maybe in the past or so the people are tem- becoming a little bit less defensive about the work that they've been doing. I think it's very good, uh, very good development. So in general, I actually think that these, say, the past 10 years or so has been very good for science. I mean, there have been a lot of scandals, but those scandals were actually not bad in themselves. What, what, hap- what was bad about it was that, you know, all the things that went, that were you know were not working before, mm-hmm. and the scandals were at the beginning of, uh, you know, the the improvements. And with scandals, I mean the things like the fraud fraud cases and the massive mm-hmm. failures to replicate. The so-called replication crisis. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe another negative side of it, from my perspective, would be that there was quite a lot of tension while it was happening as well mm. between different. Uh, groups of people yeah so perhaps that's not the most uh, civilized way there, there was one of the criticisms that people were calling each other terrorists mm-hmm. uh, methodological yeah. terrorists things like that but i guess coming to your point that people are very invested in their work mm. and very defensive of their very work. defensive yeah and i think also the open science proponents have have played a part in that because they can be very they they there's been tendency i think to by some proponents of open science to accuse everyone like to be very on the on the offensive you know Mm -hmm. and i don't think that's very productive uh and that makes other people defensive right if you're offensive and other people are going to be defensive whereas i think a lot of people who've not done good science maybe in the past they did that in in an in an environment in which basically what they did was normal right Mm -hmm. so the you can blame them maybe but only to a certain extent and then because there are very few people that actually committed fraud and stuff right that's very mm-hmm. rare but it was but what happened a lot is that just that people did sloppy science and you know removing yeah. outliers from their data reporting selectively and that kind of stuff in a way these are all uh, well 
in my view, the reason for a lot of those behaviors is the just the how the paper publishing mm, cycle yes. is constructed right now with the heavy emphasis on uh, positive results and uh, you know absolutely yeah and then it's kind of natural selection right mm -hmm. because the people who don't the people who do do actually a very careful science just uh, due, basically due to natural selection don't get as far as the, the people who cut corners mm -hmm. Uh, but again, that's that is that is definitely changing, and you see that you see that in like for example here in Groningen, but I think the rest of uh, the rest of Dutch universities are doing more or less the same thing. There's now you have to upload your data to not not necessarily make it public, but at least you have to upload your data to university repositories so that you know it's available if there are questions afterwards and that, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So there is definitely uh, things are definitely improving a lot. Um, on the same line of thought, uh, do you have any advice for novice cognitive researchers and software developers? Well, I think I think you have to be. If you start out, I think you have to be pragmatic, right? I mean, if you uh, uh, to do very careful research, but all but there's still even though things are pressures maybe a little bit less than it used to be, but it's still important for young researchers to 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 produce and to to show that they you know show show their work so I, I would say kind of try to combine on the one hand doing careful and clean open research but on the other hand also try to you know prof, prof, profile yourself a little bit go write blogs kind of uh, I don't think in some I think some people kind of make very little distinction between on the one hand doing sloppy science and on the other hand kind of promoting your own research but there, I don't think there's a, they're not the same thing at all, right? You can do you can do very careful science, which is good, and at the same time, also promote your own research. And there's nothing wrong with that in principle. There's, you have to be a little bit careful, right? You're not overselling your work, etc. But there's nothing wrong with writing blogs about about your research. And so, I, so I, that would be my recommendation to do that if you're a young researcher. I think would definitely it's definitely good to to put yourself out there, to go on Twitter, that that kind of stuff, because. Mm -hmm. uh, Establish yeah. connections. Establish connections. Yeah, it sounds a bit like a, you know. The, I don't know. It, it, maybe it sounds a bit wrong or something to say, but I think do think it's important. Like if if you if you want to, if you want to give yourself a good chance of, of success as a young researcher, I think it's important to do that. Yeah. After all, it's being a researcher is still a career. Yeah, it's and a career. You have to, yeah. You have to set up your. Uh, yeah connections between yeah. this career. Yeah, still kind of a circus and uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it will all, because life is a circus. That's not specific to 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 science or anything. Mm -hmm. so it will probably always be that way in uh, in one way or another. Yeah. To come back to a topic we've discussed uh, previously, we've talked a bit about open science, mm -hmm. but because it's still a new concept, people often confuse it with any kind of text that you can download freely on the internet so what's the difference yeah you mean between open access and uh, mm -hmm. well the, the the difference is just the, the license that you have basically uh, so for example a newspaper is something that well some newspapers anyway they provide text that you can download that you can read for free on the internet right but you are not allowed to take that text and post it for example on your own blog or do whatever do with it whatever you want uh, and the idea of open access is that not only is it free for you to read, but you can also redistribute it, you can reuse it, modify it, etc., etc. So that's 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 a distinction, and it's 
you know, it's in a way it's a bit of a subtle distinction because being able to read text for free is already a big improvement over not being able to read it at all. But uh, but it's not the same thing. For example, imagine that there's a publisher that uh, and that used that's actually that not too long ago that was a there was a publisher called Arvo a Vision Science Publisher who had a journal called Journal of Vision, and they they were they occasionally called themselves open access, but they weren't. They were only free to read. And what that would mean what that would mean is that as soon as they go bankrupt, basically their whole archive disappears because no one is allowed to 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 host that archive somewhere else, right? Whereas truly open access journals are, for example, they are mirrored. The whole content is also available on uh, on PubMed or on uh, Euro Euro PubMed, what's it called? Euro PMC. Uh, so it's it's kind of a protective mechanism, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and it's an. Uh, I have to say that actually that Arvo since changed to real open access, but at not too long ago they were still uh, kind of fake open access, only free to read. What do you think should be included in the, let's say, like the package of a certain open access paper, uh, the paper itself, the data sets, mm. perhaps? Yeah. Um, do you think method sections in, in papers are open enough as well? Um, well, I... Th- uh, no, well, no, not, not really. I think, like... Ideally, everything would be would be available, and then, for example, just a script that you can actually run to analyze the data is much better and much more concrete than a verbal description of how approximately the data was analyzed. Mm-hmm. So, if that is remotely possible, then I think it's best to actually upload and share all the analysis scripts and the experimental scripts, etc. Right? Because also for an experiment, you can describe what your stimuli look like in words. But it's much better to have an experiment that you can actually download and run for yourself and see what it actually looked like, right? Mm-hmm. So that that is definitely better. And then to a certain extent, maybe you don't even need a method section anymore because you just download the file and you see what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Although probably convenient to have at least a picture of the paradigm. But. So, uh, but it's not always possible. And again, you also have to be a bit pragmatic. For example, a lot of people, they analyze their data by just clicking on things. For example, in Excel, selecting sp- spreadsheets and... Uh, and analyzing their data that way. You cannot really share an analysis script if you analyze like that. So on the one hand, you can say it's it's a bad way to analyze, and it is because you make a lot of mistakes. But, uh, you know, the fact is that people analyze it that way, and then, you know, that's, you cannot really, I guess, force them to do it to, to start writing scripts for everything. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, yeah. But I, I would say, like, there's there are very few reasons to not share things if it's not possible. Or if it's possible, sorry, if it's possible, there are very few things, very few reasons not to share things. Privacy is one reason, I think. Like, mm-hmm. uh, for there, you cannot share identifiable information of subjects uh, in as part of your data. That's a legitimate concern, but it's uh, but it's one of the few. I would say. Okay. Um, seems like we're also slowly coming to the end of the episode very good um anything else that you would like to uh mention before we go people can find you online on uh coxi yeah yeah exactly so yeah so coxi as in cognitive science abbreviated uh dot nl yeah no then then uh and i uh well i also wrote a a short uh, short post for for mindwise so this is going to be for mindwise right this podcast so uh just by way of introduction, I wrote a short, uh, short thing. So, uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, 
Actually, I don't think we actually said that in the introduction, but I just started here as a as an assistant professor, right? So this is my second week now mm-hmm. that I'm that I'm here. So I'm really looking forward to uh, you know to working here in Groningen. And uh, what are you going to start working on? Uh... Well, you can look behind you, and there you see my project list. So it's uh... <laughs> very organized. <laughs> it's quite organized, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's uh, I'm kind of proud of it. You're already uh, working with a, a lot of different people. Yeah, yeah. Well, so a lot of projects just come, just you know, they start just continuations of what I've been doing before, right? So it's a. Uh, but I'm starting. Uh, I'm starting a new pupilometry project. I got a Veni, which is a, a grant, a Dutch uh, Dutch grant, and uh, so uh, that's uh, that's going to be my main thing for the next uh, three years. Okay. Well, we wish you a lot of luck. Thank you very and much. A lot of success in Groningen and. Uh, yeah, we hope Groningen treats you well. It's been doing so far, so... Uh... That's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was a production of Mindvoice for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.